Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation was with a human being that I appreciate greatly, Dr. Carolyn Leaf. And this conversation was all about neuroplasticity, how plastic or malleable our minds actually are. Dr. Leaf is one of the pioneers in developing the conversation around neuroplasticity and the mind-body connection. She's been studying the nature of mental health and the formation of memory for the last 30 years, and she is an absolute boss. This is one of my favorite conversations because I am just so darn interested in defining what the hell the mind is in the first place. That's a big part of what this conversation is about. What is it? Where is it? What's it taste like, smell like, feel like? And uh, how is it governing our lives? We get into the subconscious mind and the conscious mind and differentiation between the two and how to take some semblance of control on navigating that wild ride that we refer to as the mind. So really fun conversation. I'm very grateful for Dr. Carolyn Leaf to share her time. She has a new book out referred to as Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, Five Simple Scientifically Proven Steps to Reduce Anxiety, Stress, and Toxic Thinking. Alrighty, super excited to share this one with y'all. Let's get into it. Here we go. Back to the program with Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Wow. So there's like a Cohen or a riddle of what is the weight of a thought or the location of a thought. And I feel like if there's anybody that I could ask that question to and have a meaningful response, it would be you. And so what is your response to that? What I would think to be just some type of kind of like riddle. I love that question. No one's ever asked it in that way before. And it's a fantastic question. So what is the location of a thought? What is the weight of the thought? Well, a thought is the consequence of something that we do all the time, that we do 24-7, that we never stop doing, and that is using our mind. So our mind is how we think and feel and choose, and we're never not doing that. We go to bed with our mind. We wake up with our mind. We drink our coffee with our mind. We drink our tea with our mind. We decide what to wear. We have a conversation with our mind. So mind is everything, and we can manage our mind. And as we think and feel and choose, we actually build the consequence of mind. And that's what a thought is. So the thought is the consequence of thinking, feeling and choosing and thinking, feeling and choosing. We do all the time in response to every experience that we have. And that thought has three different locations, not in any specific order, but the easiest way to understand is the first location we can say is in the brain. So it's actual substance and it's proteins. Think of a tree with branches. So a thought is the whole tree with the roots and the tree trunk and the branches. And the roots and the branches are the memories. So a thought has substance and it has structure. It has roots, which is your origin story, the trunk, which is kind of the perspective that the origin story produces. And then the branches are how we manifest that perspective into our emotions and our behaviors. And that then generates what we say and what we do. So it's that kind of order. And as we are speaking now, we're building a thought about thoughts. What are thoughts? What are mind? What's mental health? So as I'm speaking, you're building the origin story. And as I'm talking, that grows into the tree trunk and you grow branches. And then I say something else, more roots, tree trunk, branches, more roots. So I keep adding memories as I'm speaking. So as I'm speaking and as I show you this, I'm sending out electromagnetic waves. Your mind, your thinking, feeling, choosing takes those 
pushes them through the brain and the brain kind of grabs those and responds electrically and chemically and genetically and builds them into these thoughts with the roots, trunk and branches that are made of proteins. And my words are vibrating in the branches. And this is constantly changing. So as you hear something else, you add some more. As I say something else, it links to something you already know. So then the root kind of connects to another root. If you think of the redwoods in San Francisco, mm. we have incredible root systems in our brain. We build connections between our thoughts. You know, so that then produces the action. So that's the first place it's stored in the brain. Then if we take the brain and the body, so the brain, so I've just described that you think, feel and choose and you build it in your brain, but you also build it in your body. So it goes into every cell of your body. So what you're experiencing goes in your brain, the thought, but then there's also a translation of that into every cell of your body in the DNA. So you've got about 37 to 100 trillion cells in the brain and the body. And so what you're hearing now is going in the brain and the trees in the tree form physical structures and also affecting the DNA. It's going into your DNA. So we store everything in our entire brain and body, which is why we feel things. And then you store it in a third place, which is the actual space of mind. Because when I said to you that you are hearing sound waves and electromagnetic waves, that's being generated from my mouth and from what you're seeing. It's in the gravitational fields. And as it comes up to you, you have your own kind of gravitational field that's unique to you each human does. And that's the action of the mind. So it's kind of a gravitational field. So we would use complex physics to understand that, but we can actually kind of see mind or understand mind in terms of gravitational fields. So the third area that we store this thought is in these surreal kind of gravitational field trees. So kind of like trees in our mind. So three places, and it's constantly in flux, constantly changing because you keep experiencing new stuff. So we keep on adding to our knowledge. So the underlying premise of everything I do is that if this is going on all the time, because it never stops during the day, you think, feel, choose in response to everything from the moment you open your eyes, everything, work, business, relationship, everything, all of it. Also at nighttime, you sort out the physical thoughts that you've built during the day. So at nighttime is a kind of housekeeping function, but you're still thinking, feeling and choosing. So my premise is that mind is always in action and brain is therefore always changing, which is neuroplasticity. And the body is always changing in response in the DNA. And the mind is always in a state of flux as a result of experience. I wanted to know, can you control this process? How much control do we as humans have over this gravitational mind, these trees, the DNA? How much control do we have? And the answer is after nearly four decades of research, yes, we have control. So I wanted to find out if we have control, what do you do to make the control work for you? And that's why I write the books that I do. That's why I've written the most recent book, which is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And I talk about the concept of the neurocycle, which is the system I developed initially for my patients four decades ago. And then I've refined it, which a scientist should do. You should keep advancing your research, learning more, getting better at what you do. So the newest book contains the concept of the neurocycle, which is how you control this formation of thoughts, how you control what they look like in your brain, how you fix up the toxic ones that we do build, because we all make a mess because we're human, and how you can transform those into these, and how you can then influence the health of your brain and your body and your mind by controlling your mind. So the neurocycle teaches you how to do that. There's kind of a long answer, and I'm sure you want to unpack it. <laughs> so. There's multiple facets or directions that I want to go with that. The first one is you're clearly very brilliant. and Ella, Thank you. So are you. <laughs> <laughs> I so greatly appreciate your existence and sharing oh. your time here and, and just you. getting to, to be with you is so beautiful. Thank I'm looking you. forward to getting to, to do it actually in the same room. Yes, we've been trying to do that for We're two gonna years do it. now. Yeah. We've been one of these days, Aaron, one of these days we are going to physically have an interview. So 
in relation to the you part, because I think there's so much to unpack about what you just said, I wonder to ride the the the, the tree analogy, what was the initial see for you to have such a voracious appetite to develop your mind in this way? It was a passion for mind and brain from a young child, although I don't think I really understood mind and brain. I knew about brain. Everyone knows about brain. But I also knew I had my own mind. I was sort of always very interested in how people thought. I was going to go into medicine and become a neurosurgeon. There was always sort of the path I was going to go, or even a psychiatrist, but then I didn't like psychiatry, what it was doing. Then I realized that those weren't going to teach me what I wanted. I was driven to go and do a degree that was actually an experimental degree. It was a new degree that they created. They don't do it anymore because it was killing people. Literally, it was just too involved. They took seven years, squashed it into four, and we worked seven days a week. It was a combination of medicine, neuroscience, neuropsychology, psychology, linguistics, and communication pathology and audiology. That's a lot. It's like different degrees put together. The objective was to develop therapists or clinicians that would be able to help people from all diverse experiences. So whether it was a war trauma or whether it was a traumatic brain injury, to be able to understand what they'd gone through and to help them to fix that. At the time, it was very hard. And at the time, I thought, why am I so crazy doing this? But now I'm forever grateful because in those first few months of that degree, the seed was sown of, I was challenged by a neuroscience professor who said that the brain can't change. This was back in the 80s. And in the 80s, they didn't believe or understand neuroplasticity, which we all talk about now. Neuro means brain and plastic meaning the brain can change. And they were talking about how the brain could be damaged. But at that stage, the brain couldn't change. And I had another neuroscience professor who said, actually, the brain can change. So I had two different viewpoints, which was really good. And I said, okay, well, I believe that one because I'm changing as a human. So all of us, I'm learning now. I'm actually learning information. So obviously I'm changing. Obviously that means I'm learning, which is me, which is my mind. And I'm using my brain to store my mind and express my mind. So how does this all work? And that sowed the seed. And so I started going into this research, master's, PhD, and 38 years later, I still do clinical trials. I just recently did, which I've summarized this sort of simple version into the book to help people to see science as a way of understanding this so-called elusive concept of mind and thought, which is why I loved your first question. So the passion started there to understand what is mind? What is a thought? Where is it stored? Can you control it? What is a memory? And as I've just said, thoughts are real. They are like trees. They're made of memories, like a tree is made of branches. We can control them. So I can say that now, 38 years later, but 38 years ago, I didn't know that. I instinctively felt that, but I wanted to be able to work with that. So I work with people like severe brain damage and autism, learning disabilities and dementias and war trauma. I worked in Rwanda at one point with the war trauma issue there and worked in apartheid South Africa and the transition. So I try to work with all socioeconomic level, rich, poor, et cetera, different corporations, education, to understand humans as much as I could in as many different environments and try to understand and answer these questions. And that's pretty much what I bring to the world now is that I'm not replacing it with any of the wellness techniques out there. They're all fantastic. They all contribute. There's incredible research. What I'm offering to the world is take all of that, use that, but how do you make it work for you? You use your mind to actually listen and read, for example, your books and learn about the importance of movement and importance of that in a healthy mind and brain, et cetera. But I have to use my mind to actually read your book. I have to use my mind to not just read, but actually apply. So I bring to the world the how to do that. How do I get my mind under control that I can learn and improve my lifestyle? How do I get my mind under control so that I can manage the anxiety, the depression, the frustration, the anger? How do I get my mind under control when we get hit with an acute trauma like COVID or death or 
loss of income? And how do I control my mind with the day-to-day stuff of you have an argument or you this happens or you read something toxic on your social media or you have an argument with a family member or you have a work colleague who's crazy or does something stupid or your kids do something or your dog does something. Life. How do you manage the day-to-day? That's all mind. So I wanted to know on all those different levels, how do we do it? And that's what this book is. Mind is a word that I think flippantly gets thrown around. And it seems like we all have a general consensus of like, oh yeah, mind, I get it. But if you're in a different culture or country and you point to where is your mind, maybe somebody might point to their belly or their heart or maybe their throat or between their head or their temples. I wonder from your perception, if there is a static boundary of mind is mind oscillate? Is there a potential for expansion and contraction of mind? Is it guided by something? Like specifically, where is the boundary of mind? Very good question. Excellent. Okay, so the easiest way to understand this is to look at this model and realize this is the physical, what we can see, touch, hear, and feel. And this is kind of 1% of who we are. The boundary then, if you're dead, this is going to go. So what's the difference between the fact that you and I are alive and we're communicating and our body's actually turning over a million cells every second and more, and we actually can exist and move forward and think and create? All of that, that differentiates what an alive person from a dead person, that's mind. So mind is that thing that literally it's a life force. So in every culture, you can get an explanation, as you've quite rightly said. You can go from the religious thing of it's the spirit and the soul. You can go from the, you know, some people just talk about mind. People talk about consciousness. So I've tried to take it as uh, the delineation then would be, if you're dead, mind is not any working If you're alive, mind is working, it innovates the brain and the body, and we see response in the brain and the body. So, so for example, the technology that I use, which is QEG and other technology, but specifically in this particular clinical trial, we see an energetic response of the brain through the different frequencies. I also look at things like DNA, and I look at blood values, and I look at the most important is I look at the person's story, because your story is unique to you, and it's got context, and it's got color, and it's got everything that's happened to you. So... The mind is you in life experiencing your multiple stories as you go through every day. And that is then expressed through different places, brain, body, and also in this almost surreal gravitational field of mind, and then expressed through what you say and what you do. So through your communication. The communication is also an element of mind because it's the end product. You know, here's the experience. It's kind of like here's the experience. Here's the processing through mind, think, feel, choose. Here's the product thought in brain, in body, and in this gravitational field of mind, forests, like little forests. And here's the next phase, which is now I speak and say from what I have stored. So to land that in an example, you and I are having a discussion. So the experience that we are having is communication. The listeners and viewers are hearing what we're talking about. So we're all having our own experience about this discussion of mind and brain. So that's the experience. How are we experiencing it through our mind? How? We're thinking, feeling, and choosing at 400 billion actions per second about what we're hearing and seeing. And that is going into the brain and the brain is responding chemically and electromagnetically and genetically. And my words and your words and what they're seeing is being converted into these little protein thought trees at 400 billion actions per second. It's actually 10 to the 27. It's an incredible speed. And then that then enables us to process and take in the next piece of information, which is the next experience, which goes through the same process. And then in our case, you processing this information to and to ask me the next question so that we can have a discussion. And I'm listening to your question and I'm taking that in through the same process. Think, feel, choose through brain, brain building these things in my body. And then I'm using that to respond back to you because what you ask me adds to this. And then I can then formulate an answer and all that's creating this energy 
energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there is a potential expansion contraction of mind based off of like a deeper viewer. So if you're in a, may say you do Vipassana or some meditation or maybe psychedelics or maybe just you're out for a walk, you know, yeah. oh, you, absolutely. Might, you may experience like a physical dissolution where all of a sudden the, the confines of this body, they start to extend into becoming, you know, well, where are they? They're gone. You know, so at, at that point, that mind is there a, a difference between that mind and someone that's very wrapped up in their doing self? Oh, absolutely. We want to help people travel between the two because what we have, and um, I'll give you sort of an analogy again, is we have at the depths of who we are, this incredible, powerful, wise mind. So we have a core wise mind, which is the mind that we can draw on, which is deeply introspective, deeply going beyond. So when someone meditates, when someone gets in the zone, it's often talked about as getting in the zone. There's lots of research on this. Like when someone's playing their cello and they just like lose that, they get in the zone. Have you seen the Soul movie, the Disney movie Soul? Oh, I need to see this movie. It's, It's on the list. Go watch it after this. And the viewers, go and watch it because they they actually give a great analogy for this concept. First of all, let's start there. Yes, absolutely. We want to extend our mind because we want to think deeply. We designed as humans for deep intellectual thought. And that deep intellectual thought is where we get into these different zones. As I said, playing the musical instrument, seeing the sunset, having that incredible conversation with someone, having that inspiration, that's all going to change the pattern and the flow response in the brain. Because the brain's not a generator. The brain doesn't generate your mind. Your mind actually is this force that exists that actually uses the brain to store and express and uses the body to store and express and energizes and innovates and gives life and energy to the body. So we want to keep growing and developing. One of the key things about brain is it's malleable. It's extendable. We should be training it. Like we train our bodies as athletes or train our bodies. We all understand you don't get in the Super Bowl without years of you know being a player, without years of, of practice. You don't become a master yogi just overnight. It takes years to be able to get those poses and things. That's just a simple example. Mind is the same thing. We have to develop our mind. And the more we develop our mind, the more we get into that expanded mind thing, we are going to become much more loving as humans, much more able to agree to disagree, much more more able to introspect and to see other people's perspective and to go beyond what we're seeing in our world a lot currently, the huge splits and huge differences and lots of argument. When people are constantly at each other's throat saying my way or the highway, that's people stuck in a surface level of thinking. They're not really digging down to the core of who they are. You know, Aaron, one of the things that we see a lot in the media, and it always frustrates me when I get asked this question such a lot, and it kind of relates to what we're talking, is people say, oh, we have a negativity bias. We do not have a negativity bias. If we look at the neuroscience, we'll see that the brain doesn't have a single structure for anything negative, nor do we have it in the body. So the minute we stay in, for example, arguing or envy or jealousy, that's our chosen mindset for that moment. We actually cause brain damage because the proteins don't fold correctly, which then affects the vibrations and the chemistry. You create a toxic version, which then causes vulnerability in your body, including the DNA. And I showed this in my research. But the minute you actually start shifting and being much more open, open to seeing things from another perspective, thinking deeper, being more accepting, then you shift into what's normal, into positivity bias. So we see the brain is not wired for negativity, it's wired for love. The body's wired for love, which is this thing I've just described. Like if you have an argument, your DNA will be affected, your brain will be affected. So when, why are we then drawn to the negative? Because we're trying to fix it. We're drawn to the negative because we have a positivity bias. So from my research and from the research in this field is that when you have a toxic issue, you're not dealing with stuff, your mind's a mental mess, you're not 
thinking deeply. You're not trying to solve problems. You're fighting with everyone and staying in the state of anxiety and not trying to manage it or find out why you're even anxious in the first place. You create this brain damage, literally. It's literal brain damage. The same way that your immune system recognizes COVID is a foreign invader and your immune system tries to fight it. Your brain's immune system and your body's immune system will recognize this toxic thought that is a physical structure. It has weight in your brain. It recognizes this as a foreign invader and you have the same response from your immune system to a toxic thought as you do to a virus in your body or a wound in your body, which is phenomenal. We don't think of it like that. I mean, that's the weightiness of a thought. So when that happens, our body goes into survival. And so survival is, this is going to increase my vulnerability to disease. And we see that if you don't manage your mind, if you don't manage your mental mess, you increase your vulnerability to disease by 75 to 98%, which is scary. And I show this in my research too. But if you manage your mind, you can shift that immediately. So with that imbalance in the brain, our survival instinct tries to fix it. That's what the immune system is trying to do. It's your survival. In your mind, it's not immune system factors going out like little armies. In your mind, it's an energetic force. So it's like think of gravitational fields. And even if you don't know what they are, just visualize sort of, you know, we all know gravity. We've all seen videos. We've all seen movies and things where we see these fields and whatever. We've heard scientists, even if you don't understand them, they're these fields that are surrounding us. Think of maybe when you played with magnets and iron filings and you saw those arrangement of the magnets. When you put a magnet amongst iron filings, it arranges itself in an electromagnetic field. So think of mind in that zone. And when we are toxic or, or anything's negative, it causes a disruption in an energy flow. And then that goes against survival. So we're drawn to the negative to fix it. Not because we're drawn to the negative because we're negative. We're drawn to the negative to get it back to the positive. Because negative is not survival. Positive is survival. And I don't even like to say negative positive. It's probably better to say toxic and healthy. Because toxic, you can manage that. How you see it is also very valid in terms of, of drawing us to the positive side or the healthy side. Does that answer your question? You are a, are you a religious person? I'm very spiritual. I believe in Godness. So I don't like to define, and I come from a very religious background, very. But as I have understood science more, I am seeing a much more expanded mind, expanded version of what God is. And when people talk about God as he, my hackles raise. Because how do we know that God is he in the first place? And I'm not being a feminist. I'm just saying that we've already created a limit to the unlimited. We do not fully understand anything about the world we live in or ourselves, no matter how advanced we are. We still don't fully understand the brain, the body. We're learning new stuff every day. And every week, there's another study saying, oh, sorry, it's not like this. It's like this. So science is like that. The gaining of knowledge is like that. So I see that godness in this expanded, incredible body, brain, universe, mind, brain connection. So I'm very spiritual in that sense. I believe that love is what godness is and love is survival. And love is the most natural instinct of a human. I can give you all the science of love and I can give you all the wishy, nice, smushy stuff of love. And I can give you the spiritual stuff of love, but I believe the force is love and I believe God is love. So does that make sense? God, yeah. I'm very spiritual. I wonder if if there is some relationship between tapping into that oceanic, unconscious part of, of you, whatever the hell that means, and God. Yes, I totally believe that. And I think it's very real. And you'll see in my book, I have a whole section on what is consciousness, which everyone talks about as the hard question of science. I mean, people talk about streams of consciousness and all that stuff. And, you know, people don't really know what it means. Well, consciousness is what you're experiencing now. You're awake. You're listening to me. That's consciousness. Non-conscious, N-O-N, is what's operating 24-7. Because when you go to sleep, your consciousness switches off, but your non-conscious is still awake. How do you spell that? N-O-N. So conscious 
Oh, non-conscious. So unconscious, non-conscious. Unconscious is another thing. Conscious That's like is I got knocked you- out. Exactly. So unconscious is if you're knocked out or you, you know, you pass out or you have an anesthetic or something. That's unconscious. But it's basically a physical state of mind as a result of an external force. Whereas consciousness is what you are in when you're awake. Non-conscious is the driving force, your most intelligent part of you. And it's awake 24-7. It's the biggest part of you, an infinite part of you. That's the part that when we talk about getting into that expanded mind, we're mm-hmm. talking about the consciousness. In religious terms, because I do a lot of work in all environments, including religious environments, I would speak about that as the spiritual level. And that when you tap into the spiritual level, you're connecting with God. And you, in every culture, you've got a version of that. And so... It seems like that if we were to conflate the unconscious mind and God just for the hell of it, it seems like that's kind of the engine that's running everything, whether we believe it or not. So we have the conscious exactly. conscious mind, like small self in the front seat, or I like the analogy of cart that you can drive around as a kid in the grocery store. Yeah. You know, it's like a race car thing and you have yeah, the belief yeah. that I'm, I'm, I'm driving this thing. And then meanwhile, you know, mom is driving the, cart the whole entire yeah. time. And she's aware of the, the aisles of the store and how they got there and the reality of the, the earth and space. And, and meanwhile, you're this little kid inside the car. You're processing this small amount of bits. Yes. And is that a fair analogy? Is that running the that's, show? That's a very, very good analogy because what we talk about is the conscious mind has done them as active self-regulation. So it's active self-regulation where you're actively consciously self-regulating and it's vitally important. We should be doing that all the time. And we are doing it, but we don't always do it well. So the concept that I teach teaches you how to self-regulate and how to do it all the time because self-regulation is always happening. The non-conscious mind, which is this massive part that never goes to sleep, it operates beyond space and time. It contains every single thought that we've ever built from in the womb to where whatever age you're at now. And it's constantly changing. So that's a great analogy that you've given. Another analogy is to think of a forest and to think of this forest that you're in a helicopter and you're flying over this forest. So the helicopter is the conscious mind and you're flying over this forest of the non-conscious mind, but it never ends. This is like this infinite thing. And through the middle of the forest, there's this huge patch of dark green trees, and they're exquisite and beautiful. And that's the wise mind. That's the this non-conscious intelligence dynamic. It's called dynamic self-regulation. It's dynamic. It's happening all the time. It's intelligence. So at the core of who we are is this love, wise mind, wired for love, optimism, bias, survival, etc., and that's what we got to tap into. And that's what we get when we talk about, you know, meditation and seeing a sunset and falling in love. So someone comes and asks you for advice and you say something, you think, gee, that was amazing. Wow. How did I even know that? Those experiences are when we tap into that wisdom. So the conscious connects consciously and deliberately with the non-conscious. And when you have this conscious connection, because we being that this huge forest is all your belief systems, your values in these thoughts are your belief systems, your nature, your nurturing, every experience, it's a mixture of these. So as you're flying over the forest, the middle is this perfect part. The outside is a bunch of little trees, which are your most recent experiences, and bigger trees, which are a bit older, and giant trees that are established experiences, lots of mainly green. But in between the forest, you're going to find clusters of these dark trees, which are very much alive, Game of Thrones, the living dead. They are very much alive and they're destructive because they they need to get rid of the whole thing is find these get rid of them because these are affecting my survival but i have to consciously do that because you have to become consciously aware 
of what this non-conscious mind is saying, whoops, danger, mom in the cart, whoops, we've got to watch that aisle there, we're going to crash into a whole lot of pots and they're going to fall on top of our head. That's what this is. Oops, there's danger. So what the non-conscious mind is doing is, is mom is saying, hey, this is dangerous. Pay attention. You're going to get hurt, depression, anxiety. It sends out warning signals. So the non-conscious mind, these little clusters of the dark are trying to catch the attention of the helicopter and say, hey, shine the spotlight on me. Land at me. Pay attention. You're going to crash into these pots and they're going to land on your child's head. You know, like let's steer in that direction. Let's go and find these and let's fix them. So the non-conscious mind's dynamic, infinite. It's brilliant. It's incredible. And it's always trying to get rid of the toxic. And it gets rid of the toxic by sending through signals. And those signals are things like frustration, irritation, anxiety, depression. Those are not illnesses. Those are warning signals that there is this whole thing going on. There's a whole story here. You've got behaviors and emotions and a perspective and there's an origin story. This could be that abuse that happened multiple times as a child that then affected how you see yourself as shame and whatever. And now in your relationships, you think, well, I can never really form one. And now you're in a relationship and it's not working and now you're depressed. So you not, don't have a disease of clinical depression. You have a story. That depression is not an it. It is a story telling you that I need to pay attention. I need to say, why am I depressed? What are the signals in my emotions? What are the signals in my body? What are the signals in my behaviors? What are the signals in my perspective? I need to get awareness of those. I need to reflect on those. I need to analyze those in a very deep way of drawing out the, making the brain work hard. So I need to write them down. I need to check what I've written, which is recheck. And I need to do an active reach. I've just said the five steps of the neuroscience. The neurocycle is made of five steps. So what I've designed over all these years is how do I catch those thoughts? How do I fly my helicopter consciously and deliberately and find what's disrupting this flow in my life? What are the toxic traumas? What are the toxic habits? And that's the big stuff. But I can also fly my helicopter consciously and observe how I'm managing a day, how I'm managing a relationship. Is there a repeated thing I'm arguing about? Is there a pattern in a relationship? Is there a pattern going on at work? Is there a pattern on how you manage work stuff? Are you people pleasing? Do you have a lot of imposter syndrome? Is it happening just now and then? Or is it invading your day? Is anger consuming you? That's not an illness. Anger will lead to a lot of feelings of depression. That is a warning signal. If you're angry, why? Let's shine the heli so helicopter, let's land the at the tree and let's start digging down, digging out the roots, getting the spade, doing the work and getting this out and reconceptualizing it into this. And what I've essentially said there is we have to embrace, process and reconceptualize, land the helicopter, helicopter conscious mind, non-conscious mind in the forest. And that's the awareness. Then we have to embrace it, not be scared of it. Like we're told to be scared. Oh, depression, anxiety, <gasps> stigma, oh, pandemic and mental health. Suicide. Yes, it's increasing. People are dying younger. People are more anxious and depressed because you've been told it's an illness. And those are responses to normal situations. I mean, adverse circumstances, normal responses. We're in a pandemic. People are dying. People are hungry. People are starving. Our whole life's been disrupted. We all know that. If you're depressed and anxious, gosh, that's so normal because it's a normal response to an adverse circumstance. So what do we do? We've got to learn to manage that, not sort of make turn it into medicalize it. Medicalizing the anxiety from the pandemic, medicalizing the anxiety from a trauma, medicalizing the anxiety from a bullying boss, that's not going to help anyone, which is what we've done for 40 years. Not me. I haven't been in that field. I've been fighting that field. But that's what's been happening, medicalizing people's experiences and their responses and then the emotions that they experience and saying, okay, you're sick. You have a disease, a neuropsychiatric brain disease. I mean, that's enough to make you depressed just having that label. And we see from the research, when you label someone, you chop years off their life. They get stuck in a toxic pattern of hopelessness and shame, and they don't know what to do with it. I'm saying embrace the shame, embrace the guilt, and embraces this. 
you like you embrace someone that you love, you bring it into your fold. It's non-threatening because you see it as something that's telling you something. It's a message. And if you follow the root of the message, you will find the origin and then you can make it work for you. I'm not saying throw your story away. I am saying make it work for you. So it's a situation of if we go and use a little bit of algebra, simple, simple algebra, I promise. X plus Y equals Z is the general sort of basic, basic formula. I'm saying it's not X plus Y equals Z. I don't want you to take your experience and how you are responding, X experience, how you're responding and how you're manifesting in your life, Y. I don't want you to take that and kind of eliminate it and suppress it into Z with a drug or a label or a pushing it down or a shame that you try and get rid of it because that's going to explode in your mind with these trees, energy, brain damage, damage in your DNA, your telomeres, your inflammation, your heart is at risk all of it. I'm saying X plus Y equals XY. I'm saying embrace it. It's happened to you. You don't have to be ashamed of that anxiety because that's happened to you. And yes, you may have been awful. You may have been terrible. You may have been horrible to someone. You may have something to be ashamed of. But if you shame shame, you're going to get more toxic. But if you embrace shame, you take that shame and you make it work for you. So now you have X, Y. I was ashamed. I am ashamed because I did X. I said something to a friend and it was really horrible and I should not have done that or a partner or something. And I upset them. I'm ashamed of that. So own it, embrace it and change it. And then you get X, Y and you grow. The messiness leads to growth and repair. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsors. We are brought to you by our friends over at Element. Element creates some of the absolute hands-down best water enhancement supplements that I know of. What the hell is a water enhancement supplement? It's a term that I made up. Essentially, what they do is they have these delicious flavored packets, various different varieties, that include a perfect blend of minerals to support your nervous system. Also make it so that your water is actually able to permeate your cells. So it includes sodium, potassium, magnesium. They come various different flavors, raspberry, citrus. My favorite personally is the cacao, which is a new version. It's very exciting. If you are interested in trying Element for absolutely no cost, well, you got to pay for shipping, five bucks for shipping. You can get yourself a free sampler pack that includes the raspberry, the citrus, the raw unflavored, and also the orange salt. And they'll send it right to your door. And if you end up purchasing any in the future, then you get 100% money back guarantee if you're not absolutely in love with the product. So if you want to get yourself a free sampler pack to check it out, you can go to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash align. And you will get yourself a sweet free sampler pack to check this stuff out. We are also brought to you by our friends over at BioOptimizers. BioOptimizers has been a company that I have supported for many years. I stand behind their products, the sourcing of all of their ingredients, and I am especially excited to share the Cogna Biotics, which is something that I've taken myself and I find a lot of value in it. It's specifically geared towards mood enhancement via supporting your microbiome. So 90 to 95% of the serotonin in your brain, your body is created within your gut bacteria. Crazy. Also, quite a bit of dopamine is created in the same place. And uh, it's a pretty big deal. The things that you put into your face, the exposure that you have to, say, healthy soil, getting out in nature, being around animals kissing people that you want to be kissing. Exposing yourself to the world is one of the most important ways to support your microbiome, your health, your happiness, your longevity, all of those things. 
Cognum Bionics is a perfect blend of prebiotics and probiotics to support the internal jungle that is your gut. So if you want to get yourself 10% off to see how this stuff impacts you, you can go to biooptimizers.com slash align. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash align. You get yourself 10% off on that mother flipping purchase. If you don't love it, they'll give you 100% money back, guarantee, no questions asked, no big deal. Try it out. You got your whole cognitive function, happiness, longevity, and all things to gain. You got absolutely nothing to lose. So check it out, bioptimizers.com slash align. Here we go, back to the program. I wonder from your perception where the origin of shame manifested and what is the value of it in culture? Is that like perhaps some like fundamentalist religious influence that then became accepted as, as gospel and, and, and truth? Was there shame before that? Because it makes sense to, if you have the old crusty dehydrated tree and it's, you know, it's in the darkness because you're ashamed of it. Yeah. If you do expose it to the light, except the tree, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, you can see some foliage come out. Maybe you you water it and you like, you treat it with love and compassion. All of a sudden that thing that did seem like a cavity, I think can come back into something that's, that's more vital. But the common tendency is to put ourselves into that double bind of, you know, being shameful of our shame. It's this, this shame loop. Do you have any sense of where that came from and what the neurobiological, mental, emotional, sociological value of shame was in the first place? I love your question. I've basically been writing a podcast on shame. We have to deal with it. Definitely, it's coming from the legalism of humans. So whether that manifests as legalism in religion or legalism in education, but it's that thing of trying to get control by imposing laws. And I'm not saying that I'm anti-laws, but laws, no one will keep a law if you tell them to. You have to make them feel it. You have to shift attitudes. So you can't just give someone the law, which is the knowledge. You have to shift the attitude and then give them the skill to be able to use the law. So what's happening is if you don't provide the knowledge, attitude, and skills, and that comes through thinking, that's mind work. Thinking, feeling, and choosing to teach people we need this law because of this. And I'm talking laws in the very broadest sense in terms of what we should and shouldn't do as humans in all the different aspects of life. Whether it's at school, there's certain rules. Churches, there's certain rules and ways of behaving. There's certain things that work for us as humans together so that we can get on. We can actually integrate with each other and we can benefit from each other because there's something you can do that I can't do. So in this natural, deep, meaningful connection. It's not about me, it's about me in the world. In this relational thing, we have brought in a lot of rules to help us to navigate that space. But rules have been very distorted. And I believe shame comes from a distortion of rules where we have said, okay, you have to do this. So just the the knowledge, just this but there's no attitude change. There's no reason. There's no explanation. There's no why. There's no benefit statement. There's no pulling on the heartstring stuff. And there's no skill involved in how to keep that. So then people can't keep that. And also there's no sense in it. So then there's shame will be developed because it's unrealistic to keep it. So then the shame comes in because if you don't do this, then this will happen. Now there's the whole thing of if I do this, I'm not going to be accepted by my partner, my family, my circle of friends, my religious group, my community, whatever, whatever. And it expands from, you know, the inside out. So in order to try and keep within the bounds, you suppress the shame. But you can't suppress these things because they're alive, they're volcanic, they're dynamic. They are causing disruption in your brain and your body. They are affecting the way you're functioning in your mind. Remember, they're stored in your brain in every cell of your body. That's why we physically experience memories. 
and also in the gravitational fields of your mind. So your mind will be affected. So eventually they'll explode in manifesting some sort of behavior breakdown, physical breakdown, and so on. That's my view. It's one angle. It's coming from that suppression. The other side, shame comes from, unfortunately, when people are, their personhood has been invaded in some ways. So some sort of huge kind of abuse of victims, a lot of victims of sexual trauma, verbal trauma, will experience a level of shame. And the reason is because of the wide for love that I've spoken about. So that natural, most natural thing between humans is to have this love relationship, which is the sort of norm. It's been completely distorted in the most shocking way where the core of who you are has been distorted and attacked. And this is why things like sexual trauma, especially from a very young age, is very pervasive and very ubiquitous and extends for many years and takes many years to, to sort of have the courage to face because it's so painful. But interestingly enough, sexual trauma leads to a lot of feelings of I am shame. And it's distorted because they're not, they're the victim. You know, so that's where shame can also come from a complete distortion of a human value that then creates the feeling of shame. We don't know what to do with that because we can't survive with it. So it tends to lead to very high levels of anxiety and very high levels of depression, which are not illnesses. They are warning signals that, hey, this needs attention. This is the non-conscious mind pushing and saying, please, helicopter, shine a light on me. Consciousness, look inside, be deliberate. And it's very hard, Erin, there's one of the experience things I can say, and anyone who's human knows what this is not rocket science. I've shown it statistically and I've shown it clinically and a lot of other researchers have as well. And I've experienced it as a clinician and as a person, as a mother of four, as a wife, and as just being human. And that's that when you face your stuff, it's very painful. It's really hard and it's sometimes easier just to suppress. And we've lived in an era where we've been offered that option of a quick fix suppression and it hasn't worked. It's created a problem where for 40 years we've been offering that kind of solution of it's labeled, diagnosed, it's sick, it's like cancer, it's like diabetes. And it's made people sicker because what we see is that people are dying. The trend of people living longer shifted, started shifting in the mid-90s and it was confirmed by the mid-2000s that instead of people living longer, they're dying 8 to 25 years younger from preventable lifestyle diseases. And the age group most affected is between 24 and 65. I actually write about it in the book. I have a whole section on what I'm saying on mental health. I've even got some sections on shame and stuff in there as well. And what we've got to recognize is that we can't just ignore the narrative of the person. We can't just hope to put a slap a band-aid on and hope that the pussy wound is going to go away. You have to address the source of why you have the wound in the first place. It keeps on oozing pus. It's a gross example, but it's a very visual, strong visual for us to, to handle. These are like pussy wounds. We have to address them at some point. So it gets very painful and then tends to get worse, called the treatment effect. I found that in my research. Treatment effect, you tend to, as in the first sort of three weeks of facing something, you're going to have a lot of ups and downs where your anxiety could increase and your depression, but there's a shift. Instead of being frightened of it and feeling like it's controlling you, by applying mind management and improving your active self-regulation of your mind, you can then experience the anxiety and depression as something helpful because you know how to manage it. So it's painful and it's hard to get through, but you know you'll get through. And that is the science. It's also not just the science, it's the experience of people too. At day one, you will say, I am shame. I can't cope. I'm so anxious. I don't want to live. To day 21, I now know I'm not shame. I'm not anxiety. I now know why I feel shameful and why I feel anxious. And it's awful. But now I know what to do. I can start fixing. By day 63, you've got a sustainable plan in place for when the anxiety and the shame hit you. It doesn't consume you. You can make that XY change, that reconceptualization. 
where you can make your past work for your future. And people might be saying, how on earth do you make trauma work for you? There's never, ever a justification for trauma, but it did happen to you. So either it can crush you and every relationship and take away the desire to live, or you can go through the painful work of facing that, recognizing why you feel the way you do. I feel shame because, I feel anxiety because, and it's terrible, it should never have happened. But now, how am I going to take that and make it work for me? How does my XY become? Kintsugi is a Japanese principle. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It really explains the XY concept, X plus Y, this reconceptualization, which is, by the way, how you do it is the five steps of the neurocycle. When we talk about self-regulation, mind management, it's neurocycling. I've taken a complex concept, years of science, and created a five-step process for how you do it called the neurocycle. And the neurocycle is these five steps that you can do in the, for the big stuff and the day-to-day -day stuff and building your brain to enable you to be able to manage these things. I'm not saying that you're going to walk around with like an avatar with a smile on my face. I experienced arguments, frustrations, acute stress, trauma. Just listen to my podcast. I mean, I just recently went through an extended family member, tried to commit suicide. And it's someone I know very well. I've been helping and I found them. I mean, I had to use mind management to get my head under control so I could be a help and a support and navigate through the terrible psychiatric world that this is now on offer to people and to be an advocate to, to help that person. So I used neurocycling in that state to keep my mind and brain in a healthy state that I could manage my way forward and get through the situation to the little stuff. Like I get irritated with my husband and three of my kids are in my business. They run the business with me. It's super easy to get irritated with family. So you may get irritated and have to then do something work-wise. I'm in front of thousands of people all the time. And there are times where I've had a frustration and an argument and I've got to get myself back together in three seconds and get in front of a camera. And I use the neurocycle to do that. So there's the kind of examples of using, getting self-regulated mind management as a lifestyle so that you can drive your mind and drive your neuroplasticity in the direction you want. Because people say a lot to me, my mind's out of control. My mind's driving me. The mother, the cart thing. You can learn to tap in and get that wisdom that the mother has that knows, can see what's coming up. That's in you. And you can develop that and grow that. So mind is malleable. It's a skill that we develop. We should be teaching our kids from young, like we go to the gym. We should be doing mind gym all the time. And this mind work, which is what I teach people to do. So a person that is in that, that scenario where they feel like, there's so many different analogies were like popping through my head during that time. I'll just run with the last one that was in my head as you were going. But like you're taking a, a walk and you have, instead of just having like one well-trained dog that's your buddy and you guys are your teammate, you have like 85 asshole dogs and they're just pulling you every which direction and you're trying to organize and they're barking and then they're pooping and they're, they're doing this thing and then they, you know, then there's fire. And... You're like, this is my, my relationship to my dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's like the starting phase of gaining relationship with those, those, uh, dogs, those, those dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and even address it, even getting to a point of, I think like when we need to get to a point of being able to even acknowledge or isolate or, or, or see what we're, what we're doing in the first place. That's the first key. That's the, exactly what you said. So first thing is to actually see what's happening. We can take the dogs and I'm going to give you another analogy that might even be easier. We can use the two. Think of a massive, you're going apple picking and there's this massive apple tree and it's so full that the apples are just falling off the tree and you walk up to it and you kind of just touch it and these apples just fall on your head and you've just got apples knocking you out. So that's sort of similar. Things are just going crazy. What do you do? And a lot of our time, these extreme versions of 
that, like I've described, acute trauma, toxic stress, toxic habits, and then there's the more day-to-day stuff. So the dogs going crazy, 85 crazy dogs and 85,000 apples falling on your head is sort of the extreme state. So yes, the first step is to gather awareness. You can't do anything. You can't change what you're not aware of. The first thing is gathering awareness. So it's like, okay, these dogs are insane. I can't manage 85 dogs. I can't stand under this apple tree, but I can move away and stand back and choose to pick the apple tree. I can go and stand back and get 85 people to each take one dog. But I first have to be aware that I can't manage 85 crazy dogs. I can't keep standing under the apple tree and getting knocked out. So I have to stand back. This is the first of the five steps. But just as you go into the five steps to get the most out of a neurocycle, to get 85 dogs under control, the first thing we're going to have to do is prime the physical because remember our mind is using the brain and the body. So we want to get the brain and the body in their best shape possible, as quick as possible to manage the apples or the 85 dogs or whatever it is that you're facing. And so priming the brain involves all kinds of things. It involves movement. It involves breathing. It involves tapping, meditation, whatever you need to do to prime. Now, you've only got a few seconds. You can do something that I've developed, which is a very simple thing. And it's something that most people are familiar with. And that's a process of breathing, but it's quite specific. You breathe in for three and you breathe out for seven. And the reason that you breathe out for seven longer exhalation is because that pushes blood and oxygen to the front of your brain, which then causes the two sides of the brain to interact more effectively and pushes extra oxygen and blood flow to the brain. Now I'm going to be less impulsive. I'm going to have better decision-making capability. That immediately reduces the neurochemical chaos that 85 dogs, insane dogs, and 5 million apples have done to you, to the state that you're in. So your neurochemistry would calm down a little. If you do the 10-second pause and you do it at least 6 to 9 times, so 60 to 90 seconds, that will shift in your neurophysiology. That's not the only thing you need to do, but that's a great tool. And you can add another component in this brain priming or this priming of the neurocycle that is also very quick. I mean, all of this can be done in, as I said, 60 to 90 seconds. If you've only got time for one 10 second pause, well, that's also going to help you. As you add three words, you add three words to the breathing exercise. So you bring in the cognitive components. I'm starting to help you get your conscious mind connected to your non-conscious mind. I'm trying to get the helicopter person shine the light on the area. And that is you add the three words of mind. So what is mind? Mind is how you think, how you feel, and how you choose. We are thinking, feeling, and choosing at 400 billion actions per second, like I said in the beginning, to convert what we experience into our brain, body, and mind. Okay? So those three words are key. When you think and you're always thinking, you'll feel. So you're always thinking, you're always feeling. Thinking's never alone. Thinking always involves feeling. And thinking and feeling always involves choices. So we are making micro thinking, feeling, choosing, micro thinking, feeling, choosing, thinking. We're doing it all the time. And then it becomes a big one. So every 10 seconds, we'll experience a sort of big think, feel, choose moment. But there's a trillion or million or however many little think, feel, choose moments that have gone into the big think, feel, choose moment. So if you take those three words and you actually say, think and feel on the inhalation of three and choose like that kind of yoga breath where you push it through that oceanic like yogic kind of breath where you push it out, you push it through. And if those that don't do yoga, it is basically pushing oxygen to the front of your brain where it almost feels like your head's going to pop. That's great. Okay. That means that you've you whoosh it out and you're getting the oxygen here. So adding think, feel, 
choose, adding words, cognitive, forces the conscious to start connecting with the non-conscious. So that's just a little bit of priming and there's lots more. I've got a lot of different exercises in the book and I've got an app called NeuroCycle that goes with it that does all this stuff but you've got all the, I'm walking you through all the five steps, 63 days because it takes 63 days to form a habit so you've got to do these five steps over 21 days and then you've got to do the fifth step over 42 which we can talk about in a moment so I'm just throwing a few things out there. Let's bring it back to the dogs and land that then we can talk about the numbers quickly. So Prime your brain and then gather awareness. You said it earlier on, you've got to get aware. You've got to have awareness. But I'm not talking about just awareness in the now moment. That's another mistake we make with meditation. Meditation, it forces you to be aware of the now moment, but that's very unnatural for your non-conscious mind because your non-conscious mind time travels. Every thought tree is present, past, and future. When you force your conscious mind to go into just the now, you're kind of disciplining it to do what's unnatural. And that's not bad, but you can't stay there very long. And it's not a solution. It does calm the mind down. So it's a very good priming for the brain. But you've got to go beyond that because three quarters of your day, you spend time traveling, if not more. I think it's more. The scientists are proposing three quarters. I think it's probably 99% of the day that we time travel. So bursts of meditation where you are very mindful of the now moment is a good exercise too. So when I say gather awareness, I'm not talking about just of the now. I'm talking about get into that forest, get the present, past, future, get the whole lot, because you need the whole story. And the story is made up of everything. How you see the present is based on the past and also what you expect from the future. So they're all going backwards and forwards all the time. So gathering awareness is this gathering process where you get into a mindset, you've primed the brain with breathing or meditation or tapping or whatever you want to do. And then you get into a state that I call the MPA, multiple perspective advantage, where you stand back and observe yourself. So you split into two. Here's the messy mind, Caroline. Here's the wise mind, Caroline. The wise mind, Caroline, is like the therapist. You might even want to do this little split. It's an excellent, brilliant thing. As soon as you do it, your two sides of your brain work together. You get more blood flow and oxygen. The delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma waves flow more accurately. So you've got, then you activate different structures of your brain. So breathe. Even before you breathe, you can get into the MPA, multiple perspective advantage. So here's the sequence. Okay, 85 dogs. Apples on my head, argument, whatever it is, okay? I'm feeling totally like thrown. So there's the picture. What do I do? Okay, Caroline, get into your wise mind. So split. Stand back and observe your thinking, feeling, and choosing in that moment. Okay, what do I do first? I can't even focus. Like I'm standing back, breathe. Do the 10-second pause with think, feel, choose. Add the cognitive component. Do it six to nine times. All right, now, step one. Caroline, do step one. Gather. Get a basket in your mind visually and go and pick the apples. So in the MPA, instead of sitting under the apple tree with it falling on my head, I've now come back and I've said, okay, that's the problem. I'm not in the problem. I've created space between me and the problem. So the wise mind is creating the space and saying, okay, come here. Let me take your hand. Come and sit here. Let's pick the apple. So I reach out and I pick the apple, put it in my basket. Gather awareness. Embrace gather awareness. See, it's not just aware, it's gathering it. So I'm choosing it, I'm controlling it. Neuroscientifically, the minute I gather awareness, I bring this thought into conscious mind. So the helicopter lands, I see the tree. Neuroscientifically, this thought in this brain, now the protein bonds, remember it's made of proteins in the brain, those protein bonds weaken, the chemical bonds weaken, the vibrations change, they become in a state of flux. What does that all mean? I can change it. But if it's down here and I can't see it in the unconscious and I haven't landed my helicopter, those bonds are very strong. I can't do anything about it. It's driving me. So I'm going to snap, snarl, get more depressed, whatever. But if I gather awareness, I've shifted the power balance. Down here, if I can't see it, it controls me. 
appear gathering awareness in this very organized way, I control it. So this is where if you've got shame, don't feel guilty or shameful about the shame. Embrace it, own it, because that's how you'll fix it. And that's how you can find a way to repair and get through the shame. Otherwise, it keeps you locked in. So you gather awareness of your emotional warning signals, like shame or like frustration or like depression or anger. You gather awareness of the physical response in your body. Remember, you store everything in your body. So your heart could be palpitating. You could have adrenaline rushes. You could have GI issues. You could have a flushed face, whatever. You could have a combination, many different responses, but become aware of the physical. You might feel sick to your stomach. People say that often. Nauseous, whatever. Gather awareness pick that apple. Gather awareness of your behaviors. What are you saying? How are you speaking? What's your body language? What's the response of the people around you? How is it affecting your work? Are you able to be creative, et cetera, et cetera? Gather whatever's appropriate. Gather awareness of your perspective. What, how is this affecting how I view life? Am I viewing life life sucks or am I viewing life life doesn't suck? What's my perspective, which is the tree? And as you gather awareness of those things, now you've got them in your basket. Now what do you do? You go to step two. See, these are very systematic. You can't skip a step. This has all been scientifically worked out. Each thing is taking you deeper and deeper and getting you to the tree, landing the helicopter, shining the spotlight, landing the helicopter, looking at the tree, and it makes you feel uncomfortable, but you're going to be strong. You're going to face this tree, and you're going to start looking at the branches, which are all the behaviors, the emotions, the perspective. Tree trunk is getting to the perspective, and then why is getting to the roots. So each wire is taking a spade and digging out the roots. Eventually, you're going to dig out all the sand and you can upend the, the thought and you can reconceptualize and build a new one. Okay, the XY version. So the second step then is to reflect. To reflect is a beautiful word. Like you shine light through a prism and it breaks up into all these different colors. So when you reflect, that's what you're doing. You are creating a reflection. When you shine a mirror, you see yourself back in the mirror. You're complex. You're incredible. That's what reflection. So in other words, it's the complexity of this thing. You're honoring the complexity of the situation by saying, okay, there's a reason why I'm doing one feeling and doing all these things and have this perspective. I honor that. It's valid. Let's find out even if it's a bad reaction or it's toxic and affecting you, that's okay. See it as helpful. Recent research came out of Tokyo and out of Texas, combined study, and it confirmed what I found a year ago in my research, and I put this in the book, that if you view, gather awareness in the way I've just described and see that those signals as helpful to help you move to the next stage, you see them as messy, messiness that's okay, that you can grow and repair through, you then shift all the physiology of your brain and your body and you're going to get through it quicker. You're going to get to the core of the issue quicker. So for example, as I do this gather, as I do the breathe, the multiple perspective advantage, the gather. As I go through this process, I am making 1,400 neurophysiological responses in my brain and my body work for me and not against me. So for example, if I'm stuck in the 85 dogs, the apples on my head, the shame, the guilt, the fight, the depression, the whatever it is, if I'm stuck in that, I am stuck in that apple tree situation. I am actually making my body crash. My inflammation's increasing. My DNA are being affected. My telomeres are shortening. Telomeres are on the ends of chromosome. They're a proxy for how you're managing your mind. I showed in nine weeks, you can increase the length of your telomeres if you manage your mind insignificantly that you can actually reduce your biological age. That's huge. Okay. So you can change your health of your body in the shortest nine weeks when you're managing your mind. 
basically, when we are gathering awareness in this way, we're seeing this as helpful. So a simple example of this help is if you see it as helpful, the blood vessels around your heart will dilate instead of constricting. When they dilate, that pushes more oxygen and blood flow to the brain. When there's more oxygen and blood flow in the brain, I think with less impulsivity. I have more cognitive flexibility and creativity, which I need to solve the problem, which I need to have resilience. I increase brain resilience. I increase mind resilience. I increase body resilience because this is a tough thing to do. So I need as much resilience in order to be able to deal with it. So if you see it as helpful, but if you see it as not helpful, the blood vessels around the heart will constrict. Now I've got less blood flow to my brain, less oxygen to my brain. That's one of 1,400 neurophysiological responses. And there's probably more. That's an estimate. So this is very real and we have a lot of control over it. So I bring these things into my research and into the book. So in a very simple way, the way I've done the science is I've got like little science and then I've got a little thing that says, this is what this means for you. So I'll take a little bit of science and then I, I'll make it adapted for you. So it's not in these pictures and colored graphs. And I mean, I've got these really cool colored graphs and all kinds of things in the book to help you understand what I'm describing and the impact on the brain. I have hung on the, on the term bad reaction. I think it's such an interesting thing. We have the, the expression of what is, whatever it may be. It could be, you know, norepinephrine or cortisols or inflammation yeah, yeah, or whatever, whatever, yeah. the, whatever the thing is. I'm, I'm pissed, you know, whatever the thing is. There's, there's just the isness. There's it is the going to be, yeah. And then, and then from there, there's the story that we attach to it. And the story exactly. could be one of acceptance and say, ah, oh, here is this isness. <laughs> And there was there was a you know a, a root of this, and now I'm experiencing it, and here we are. That would probably be something more like maybe like a fire department or a doctor or something coming in and say, okay, cool, let's address. And then there could be the other thing of like, oh, this is bad. Like I'm, you know, I did a bad job. I'm I'm sabotaging. I'm like whatever whatever your stories are. That would probably be like adding gasoline to the fire, or perhaps that could be the catalyst that you need to create change. But well, it it's just be. interesting. There's a topical. There's there's the isness, and then there's the the next layer of my definition of it. But that is a, a choice. But Absolutely, but you you've got to do mind work. You've got to you've explained it exactly. The isness is you are sabotaging. The isness you are shame, feeling shame and guilt or whatever. So you've got to have the mind do the mind work to then say why is there that isness? So why am I sabotaging? What are the, all the different things? And that's why you'd go through that gather awareness and I've meticulously explained that. But then you'd reflect, which is ask, answer, discuss. You would write in a metacog form. So you're trying to work out the isness. Why? What's the story? You've got to find the story. So it's gather, reflect. Reflect is ask, answer, discuss. Write. You write. You don't just write down. You write. You vomit your brain on paper. Just get it out. No fancy. And I suggest and recommend to do a metacog, which I explain in the book too. And I have a video in the Neurocycle, which is simply writing in a way that's patterned, that matches the kind of brain design and helps what the research shows. I've spent 38 years on this too. So metacog is something I developed, but it gets the two sides of the brain working together so that you can dig deep and find the, the reason behind the isness. And then the recheck is the fourth step. You check what you've written, sort it out, patterns, etc. I mean, I'm going through it quickly, but it's a very constructive process where you find the antidote because you're starting to see the isness. So now I need an antidote. What's how am I going to manage this? And the active reaches the action to manage it. Yeah. So it's done daily for 15 to 45 minutes over 21 days. And then from 22 to day 63, you just do step five, do the action. And that then turns this little tree, which has grown in 21 days, it's tiny, but you add on the extra 42 days to take it to day 63, you've grown the tree into a nice strong tree. Then that tree, when it's a strong tree, it's a strong thought, that will then change your behavior. Most people only do things for three or four days. A lot of people think that you build a habit in 21. Nonsense, all of it. It takes you 63. If you 
you want to change your behavior, you're going to have to do cycles of 63. And having said that, you can also use these five steps in the instant to manage the now moment. But if you're finding yourself having to do it all the time, that's a pattern. Any pattern, then you have to take into the 63 days. So you can use it on two levels, fast to manage the now. And then if you find a pattern, you need to find out why you've got that story. Why do you keep having that isness? So, yeah. I wonder if the 63-day thing could potentially be malleable, kind of like the 10,000-hour the rule. And it, there could be other circumstances such as maybe like, I don't know, different forms of therapy. I, I wonder if psilocybin or things of that sort, which is oh, you know, Michael yeah. Holland in an interesting book in relation yes. to that. And synaptic potentiation and like yeah, kind of opening up, opening up the potential for those those highways that we've created to start to transform. Yeah. I don't know. It's also interesting. Thank you so much for making my time pleasure. to do this. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, so people should get the, yes. that. That's very apparent. Where do they go over the book? Yeah, anywhere where books are sold and they can go to drleaf.com. They can right. go to my Instagram, Dr. Caroline Leaf. They can go to the website, cleaningupyourmentalmess.com. Wherever books are sold. And if they want to know more about what I do, the Instagram is Dr. Caroline Leaf. Yeah, I love uh, you. Oh, thank you. I love you too, Aaron. I love talking to you. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. I look forward to the time we do this in person and enjoy the day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. See ya. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, feel free to share it on the internet. Instagram is a likely place. You can tag me at Align Podcast. You can tag Dr. Carolyn Leaf at Dr. Carolyn Leaf. And I recommend sharing a specific part that you found valuable. And maybe if you don't share it on the internet, you could just tell a friend, you could write it down yourself. Something that I like to do is I will actually, on my wall in my living room, I have marker boards set up. So when I hear like a quote or some kind of idea that I think is interesting, I will personally write it down and that way I can continue to come back and see that image and rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Dr. Leaf mentioned like a habit takes 63 days to form. So the more that we can rehearse these things, the more that we can ingrain them into our minds. If you guys are interested in learning more about how to ingrain more effective movement patterning into your world, you can check out the six-week Align Method online program, which is found at alignpodcast.com slash courses and breaks down everything you ought to know about how to mobilize and open up the spaces in between your ankles and your knees and your hips, your spine, your shoulders, your neck. If you're having pain, stiffness, rigidity when you wake up in the morning, you feel generally kind of rusty and crunchy. The Align Method online program will support you in lubricating the sweet, sultry joints, breaking down very specific exercises that you can do from your home, hotel, traveling, any place of the sort. And it is wrapped up into an easy-to-follow, step-by-step, six-week online program. So once again, it can be found at alignpodcast.com slash courses. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out at Align Podcast on the Instagram. All right. I hope you have an exceptional week, and I'll see you soon.